Well, good morning, Menlo Church. So good to see you. Here we are again. Some of you are like, oh, good, he's back. Some of you are like, he's back. And uh, I'm glad for both groups. Uh, it is my lovely wife's birthday today. She's in the front row with us. Yep. She's turning 29 again. It's a miracle. Uh, we're so glad that you are here. So glad that she's here. Uh, I was praying this week that God would bring to mind our time together, if you were this last week, and that you would maybe allow God to shape you in how you think and how you interact with others as you surrender more and more of your life to his power. And we're gonna continue that conversation today. I'm gonna pray for us as we get started. If you've never been here before, never heard me speak, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that is because the renewal and the revival that we're talking about in this season as a community, it requires a power that is bigger than all of us. It is bigger than our intellect. It is bigger than our capacity to give. It is greater than our capacity to serve. It is greater than us. And so even now, just humble yourself with me as we ask for God to provide that power for this moment together. So Jesus, God, thank you so much. Thank you for this incredible gift, even over the course of these moments together, that we can lift our situations up to you, that you care, that you love us, that you love the people who don't know you yet. Uh, whether they're in this room, watching online, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, even in our homes. God, would you help us that our renewal might create a revival in our community and beyond. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, have you heard of ChatGPT yet? Have you heard of this? Uh, some of the people that actually help make uh, ChatGPT work are a part of Menlo Church, which is pretty fun, but it's a technology that has caught on like Wildfire. It's an artificial intelligence chat tool that uses a large language model uh, to respond to your request by creating things, and it's really good at it. And if you're like, I didn't understand any of those words, right? Let me just give you an example. As a matter of fact, my entire message last week was written <laughs> by ChatGPT. Isn't that fun? Just kidding. But some of you, you're like, was he really just kidding? And that's actually the point. Educators around the country are trying to grapple with the implications of something that isn't plagiarism, but it isn't genuinely human either, and they're not sure it's something totally different. Now, how we spot what is genuinely created by the human mind versus something that just looks like it is, is only going to become harder in the days and years ahead. Movies, shows, books, websites, news articles, the technology isn't all the way there yet, but it's close and we should prepare now for when it is. Last week we began a short series focusing on this simple idea that the more we wait for something, the bigger the blind spots in our life that can get created become. We talked about the blind spot of wanting revival without renewal last week and this week we're going to look at the opposite. Now, there's a special welcome I want to extend to all of the folks joining us from one of our Bay Area campuses in San Jose, Saratoga, Mountain View, San Mateo, right here in Menlo Park and online. We are one church in multiple locations unified around a common mission. At Menlo Church, we long to see people find and follow Jesus because there's this flourishing that our world can only find in Jesus. And we're going to talk about that. Last week, I defined renewal and revival, and in case you're new or newer or you missed it, I want to provide those definitions for you one more time. The first word is revival, which is a concentrated work of God to lift an entire area or group out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into the conviction of sin, a desire for submission to Jesus, and a community that is tangibly 
transformed. And I believe that the hope of Jesus, it doesn't fix every discomfort in our life. That's not the promise. What he offers is a path to a flourishing life. And I see a culture that is floundering around us that I'm praying for revival in the middle of. Last week, we talked about what else it takes to see that though. And the second component is renewal, which is a concentrated work of God to change the individual or group into greater connection to the ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit and a more submitted life to the revealed way of Jesus in the Bible. It takes revival and renewal. See, just like the distortion we talked about last week when we want revival without renewal, there is a distortion to our faith when we want renewal without revival as well. Just like ChatGPT, our pursuit of Jesus can look really close but miss the mark. Over the next few minutes, we are going to look at the fact that renewal without revival leads to counterfeit faith. And that may feel strong. That may feel like something you're not fully ready to embrace, but Uh, we're going to look into this key teaching from the life and ministry of Jesus that shows up in our lives and how we need to be so careful not to settle for a close but not quite kind of faith. And it starts when we understand that practice actually can make pride. When practice makes pride, Jesus is going to focus on what it looks like for us to avoid this problem in our lives too. Our new house here in Menlo Park, it has a basketball hoop in the backyard. And before you go wondering what kind of house we live in, it's great, but it's, uh, it's a three-point sport court set up on concrete. I'm not running full court with Steph Curry back there, I promise. But I am actually a terrible basketball player. I enjoy it, it's fun, but I didn't grow up playing it, so it never became my sport. And on top of that, I'm not very competitive. So it's easy for me to like let my kids win, or it's easy for me to just shoot around because that is my skill capacity, right? And that's not humility. That's just honestly assessing my ability. Humility is required when we are good at something, but when we're not good at it, when it's bad, it's just honestly understanding our capacity. There are so many different definitions of humility in our culture. So I thought just to experiment with it, I would ask ChatGPT to give us a definition of Christian humility. This is ChatGPT's take. It says, in Christianity, humility is seen as a foundational aspect of faith and is considered to be a key characteristic of Jesus Christ himself. Humility is defined as a posture of submission and obedience to God and a willingness to put others before oneself. Christians believe that humility involves recognizing one's dependence on God and acknowledging one's own weakness and limitations while at the same time valuing the worth of others and serving them with love and compassion. Humility is viewed as a way of life that leads to spiritual growth and is seen as a necessary component for living a life that pleases God, says the robot, just so we're all on the same page. It's pretty wild. What's hard is to have humility in something that you're good at. When you're good at it, it's easy to take credit for, right? And so we're going to kind of see Jesus highlight this problem, specifically in the lives of the religious leaders of his time who were amazing at rules. They were incredible at it. They were incredible at looking like they followed them and setting them for other people to follow. The story begins this way. It says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do, uh, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. See, Jesus is talking to a crowd outside, no microphones. Everybody that wanted to hear clear got closer. And as he's talking about it, he's not beating around the bush. Matthew, a tax collector turned follower of Jesus, he is highlighting this idea. He had just finished highlighting the teaching of Jesus that we call the greatest commandment, where Jesus is talking about how loving God and loving others, actually all of the law and the prophets hang on this central idea. And now Jesus, he pivots and he's talking about the abuses that he has observed by religious leaders of the time. The scribes who were experts at interpreting the law and the Pharisees who were experts at making it relevant in the life of people in the moment. And Jesus, spotting this problem elsewhere in his ministry, he says this, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Religious leaders, and specifically rabbis, they had what they would have called their yoke, which was their specific interpretation of the rules from the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. But Jesus is specifically calling out the extras, the stuff that people had added that they constantly added because it allowed them to preserve power. They didn't help others with them either. In Jesus' own words, they weren't practicing what they preached. They were hypocrites. And if you talk to the average non-Christian in your life, this is one of the biggest challenges that they have with Christians, maybe not you, but Christians in the world, is that they see us as hypocrites. Jesus was slowly revealing a vision for life that wasn't about us trying to achieve status through our obedience, but instead it was about understanding and experiencing that it was through Jesus' obedience for us that our life might be transformed. It was so different than the way they experienced religion or religious people at the time. See, you probably, you get a sense of how much this group of leaders, they, they wanted to be celebrated. But some of the references might sound strange, right? Moses' seat was literally a seat in synagogues where guest teachers would be honored, but it was also this figurative way where they would leverage the authority of the Hebrew scriptures to teach their way of living it out. They loved the role that they got to fulfill in that. Also, Jesus points out how people saw them, how people honored them, right? how they saw these religious symbols like the Teflon, which is this box with straps around it that contains scriptures. And there was a certain practice for their daily prayer that they used it for, or the fringes of their garments that reminded, it was designed to remind them of their mortality and God's status in their life. But instead they wore them extra long so that other people would notice them, the exact opposite of what God wanted it to really be about. They loved the way that people saw them. They loved the way that people honored them. And maintaining this power became everything. That's why they had such a problem with Jesus over the course of his ministry. I'm sure it wasn't always that way for them. I'm sure that for them, it didn't start that way. See, I'm doubting that many of you 
would say, you know what? You've just described Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders with terrible self-righteous attitudes. I'm going to opt in. That's me today. I feel that way. I'm doubting that many of us would do that. But our parallels are not too hard to draw, right? Have you grown up in church? Do you have all the answers? Are you quick to point out how they, whoever they are, they don't do it right? Well, you also fall short, but don't observe that. See, we can become so sophisticated in our religious requirements that no one ever meets our standard. We'd love for someone to become a Christian or come to church or be a part of our community, but you just can't find anybody that'll measure up to standards that you also don't measure up to. Part of that is the Pharisee that's inside all of us that judges others by the worst of their actions while you judge yourself by the best of your motives. How easy is it for us to do that? See, people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus, and he loved them. Do you? How easy is it for us to create categories of people we no longer have to love? Be careful not to assume that you have not gotten so good at practicing religion that you have become prideful and ended up ignoring, dismissing, and judging the very people that Jesus loves and died to redeem for himself. Be careful. Spiritual practice with humility in community, it can create incredible growth in your life. But spiritual practice in isolation, it can also create pride that keeps people out. And when we want renewal without revival, it leads to counterfeit faith for all of us. There are no exceptions to that. They said all the right things, but it had become status for themselves rather than serving others. And that leads to Jesus' next concern of when servants become celebrities, when servants become celebrities. Everything today is built around celebrity culture. Sometimes we call it influencers, but it's this idea of what does it mean to make it big? As a matter of fact, in a study just from last year, more than a third of Gen Zers or 11 to 26 year olds said they wanted to become social media influencers. And why not, right? You get free stuff, you make money, you travel, you're awesome. So why shouldn't everybody know that, right? That's the logic. But if you look at most of the people who have made it big, they didn't start trying to. They started out with an interest, they built an audience, they found a niche, and then it blew up over time. The religious leaders that Jesus is talking to, they, did prob they probably did not set out to become celebrities in the religious world at the time. They would have been selected at a very young age because of their character, because their unique ability to memorize the Torah and to apply it into their lives. They started in this work and this line of life because they wanted to help people and it got distorted along the way. Jesus, he continues to point out just how far this had drifted in the lives of many of the religious people. And he talks about it this way, he says, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher. You're all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Christ, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people in the open air. They are getting closer to be able to listen to him. And what's hard to imagine is that he is talking about a group of religious leaders, but speaking at this moment directly to a crowd that has some of his followers in it. 
He is encouraging them to live differently than a group of people who are still in front of him. (laughs) Can you imagine how cringy this moment must have felt? How awkward it must have been? People looking at the very religious leaders that he's criticizing, looking at their posture and their body language, trying to see how they felt about it. In case you didn't know this, the religious leaders were already not big fans of Jesus, and he is just doubling down. Jesus narrows in on the titles that would have been used in their day, and he tells them never to make it about their titles rabbi or teacher because they'd found a teacher in God and they were siblings in this bigger divine family. Calling a religious leader father, that didn't make any sense. Not when you recognize that you have a true heavenly father. Instructors, no, because as a matter of fact, even though they didn't realize it yet, he was taking that on himself as the Christ. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we can't have titles. I would actually argue that what he's saying is that titles shouldn't have us. See, when you have to be referred to something before your name, when I have to be referred to something before my name, that's probably a red flag. That's why I introduced myself as Phil, not Pastor Phil. That's why none of you introduced yourselves to me today as software developer Susan, right? Like that would be a weird thing. We all kind of get it. It's even easier in Christian ministry to let your identity and your job be wrapped up together. But we all submit together in this heavenly kingdom to a different paradigm of leadership. And that's where Jesus goes next. It's only the humble who will be ultimately exalted in his upside-down kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is different than the kingdoms of this world. And if we are pretending to be interested in God's kingdom as a means of getting perks in this kingdom, we have missed the point. Serving always comes with suffering when it's aimed at the right kingdom. But oftentimes we stop short of that. Oftentimes the moment moment that it requires difficulty, we change the subject. Can I share maybe an uncomfortable quote with you? You're like, you have a microphone, Phil. I think you are going to do it. (laughs) There's a theologian and pastor from the 19th century named Charles Spurgeon who says this. He says, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. It's difficult to hear that, isn't it? Matter of fact, Barna Research just before COVID revealed that nearly half of practicing Christian millennials, so folks about my age and a little younger, uh, they believe that sharing their faith so that others might believe it is morally wrong. On the other side of COVID, I think probably that view is shared more widely than we'd like to admit. And before you like get your pitchforks ready, (laughs) think about the climate that Christians are in today. We are known probably more for what we are against than what we're for. We seem to sometimes be more driven by politics and preferences than by people. But it's not too late for that to change. We have to start thinking more like missionaries that invest in long-term relationships rather than salespeople invested in short-term transactions to try to close the deal. That, That should be our heart anyway. Jesus calls us to make disciples, not just decisions. And a watching world is looking to see if we really care, if we're really willing to invest that way. Can I give you a question maybe to ask a non-Christian friend in your life? If you're like, how do I start this? I don't think I have the gift of evangelism. I'm not sure I could totally articulate my faith. It starts actually by listening. So let me just give you a question. If you have a non-Christian friend or a non-Christian family member or coworker, buy them coffee and ask this question. Say, "Can can I ask you, 
Would you share what your experience with Christians has been over the last few years? You don't have to defend. You don't have to deflect. Just listen. Because oftentimes you are the Jesus that they will see. You are the Bible that they will read. And being a Christian who doesn't jump down their throat, being a Christian who doesn't have to close the deal, being a Christian that trusts God to be in that conversation may be what God can do in ways you would never imagine. Your friend group, they may judge you for this. You might have to make space in your life for this. But I'll tell you what, just because you might be misunderstood for doing it, you'd be in great company because Jesus was too. And even if your spiritual resume looks great right now, just know that renewal without revival, it leads to counterfeit faith. It might look the part and not be the part. And finally, Jesus turns his attention directly to those religious leaders and talks about when bridges become barriers, when bridges become barriers. Up to this point, Jesus has been talking to this group of people, this crowd, and I can't imagine how it felt in this moment for Jesus to be talking to a crowd of people, understanding that there's some people he's making uncomfortable, and now all of a sudden his gaze shifts, and I can imagine him making eye contact with some of the very Pharisees and scribes he's been talking about. And he shares this part, and and honestly, nobody ever talks to this group of religious leaders this way, ever. But Jesus says this. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Like it's uncomfortable and it's 2,000 years later. Like, and Jesus is just getting started. If you're unfamiliar with the text, Matthew will actually record seven what are called woes that Jesus gives to the religious leaders. And we're going to look at the first two. This word woe is used to get their attention, to be able to spotlight something that is deeply painful and hurtful that they have done. And the assumption of the religious leaders is twofold. One, they have assumed that they have done what they needed to do to successfully clear the bar to be accepted with God, and they have set the bar just high enough that other people could never be able to clear it. But Jesus is clarifying, your approach is A, not going to get you into heaven, and B, no one else too. That is a big wake-up call. See, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he was regularly correcting those who were more interested in maintaining power than surrendering their power so that other people could find hope. His eventual sacrifice, his death on our behalf, is all about demonstrating this kind of self-sacrifice for you and me. It didn't stop with the Pharisees or the Sadducees either. As a matter of fact, after Jesus died and was resurrected, after he made an invitation to all people to know him, In the first century church, there was a a lot of pressure from Jews who had become Christians or what they would have been called as followers of the way. And they wanted non-Jewish Christians, people that did not grow up Jewish, to follow the Jewish law as a part of following Jesus. And that meant following hundreds of rules. It actually meant uh, for many adult men, surgery. Like it was a problem. It created a big, big problem in the first century. The very thing that Jesus came to fulfill, they were placing back on the shoulders of men and women who were trying to follow the way of Jesus. So much so, this was such a big problem that in the first century, they convened something called the Jerusalem Council to address it. 
And this, the first century, really hung in the balance of what happened there. And so Jesus' half-brother James, who did not believe that his brother Jesus was his savior until after Jesus died and came back from the dead. And before we get too tough on James, how could you not see that? I have two older brothers. It would basically take them living a perfect life, telling me they were going to die and come back from the dead, and then pulling it off for me to believe that they were the Messiah. I kind of get it, right? And so he becomes a follower of Jesus, a ruler at the church in Jerusalem. He understands his brother is his Lord, and he hears the arguments, and he passes judgment. He gives his perspective about what rules people should follow. And Acts 15 records his response this way. It says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things that have been polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. See, if the religious leaders in Jesus' day were prone to the problem of creating barriers to revival, even first century Christians, they let the performance markers get in the way. We should be careful that we don't assume we won't. And look, ours are gonna be different, right? We're not gonna be talking about food sacrifice to idols. That's not our context. But understanding when we add barriers, we are creating something that Jesus doesn't. The message just feels too simple, doesn't it? If you've become a Christian and you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably heard this word bridge before. Probably reminds you of a picture if you grew up in church. A way that people have sometimes described the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has been through a bridge illustration. And it's not perfect, but God has used it. It provides this simple picture to show that even though you are created in the image of God with infinite dignity, value, and worth, that we are separated from God by our acts of disobedience, by what the Bible calls our sin. And no matter how good we are, we will never be good enough. And it takes Jesus' grace, His righteousness, as our only hope to be in restored relationship to God. That's the hope He came to provide. Like I said, it seems too easy, too basic, not enough performance. But it's not that it didn't take perfection. It's just that you could never achieve perfection. I could never achieve perfection. That's why Jesus had to come, that he might offer a perfection that none of us could. And that because of that, now we can admit we can't measure up and that he has on our behalf. And that's what you've always needed. That's what your coworker needs. That's what your classmate needs. That's what your neighbor needs, your family member needs. That's what the world needs. Artificial intelligence is going to really help us in a lot of different ways in our world, but artificial spiritual development won't. Your counterfeit compassion, where you know all the right words and you know what to say about unchurched people, people who don't know God in your life, it might fool some people, but it's fooling less people than you think, and it will never fool God. Genuinely caring for those who are close to you but far from the relationship that Jesus died to provide is close to the heart of God. And Jesus is critiquing those religious leaders in the first century who had lots of spiritual practices and rhythms, but did not understand that they had left their love for people behind. There's a pastor and an author in New York City named John Tyson who says it this way. He says, revival is just renewal gone viral. How many of us have incredible spiritual rhythms in our life, have amazing memories and moments of following Jesus, but somewhere along the way, the principle of revival has left us. We have grown so much over the years, 
And Menlo, you have helped lead the way in this pursuit of spiritual renewal and formation. But have we convinced ourselves that the Bay Area is just no longer interested in God? That the way we will grow and the way more people will walk into rooms like this or log on is people that move into this area or people that learn about us who already know Jesus? Is that just the way it's going to work? I hope not. God forbid. There was a time when renewal and revival were linked, when they were seen as inseparable, when one fed the other. And that time is here again. Let's pray together that that would be the case in our lives and in our moments. Over the last couple minutes together, what I'd love to do is ask you to pull out that card that somebody gave you, hopefully when you walked in. Looks like this. Um, This card is hopefully a tool for you even after today. Maybe this goes on a mirror. Maybe this goes on your fridge. I think there's great power in unity, great power in us praying something together intentionally for our renewal and our revival, not just as a single person or even just for our specific campus, but for Menlo Church as a whole to say, God, we want you to do this in our life and in our community. Maybe even as you begin those devotion guides and Lent together, this becomes a part of your practice in this season. So before we go, I'd love for you to pray this prayer with me. If you're in the room with us, or you're watching this with folks, pray it out loud. If you're watching online and you're in a coffee shop, pray it out loud. It'll be fine. Not weird at all. Let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, would you give us a sense of personal community renewal that finds the deepest longing of our souls in you alone? Would you grant us the conviction to unearth the pockets of rebellion in our lives, even as we seek to address the brokenness around us? Would you grant an overflow from our renewal that revives our church, our world, our communities, our region, and our world. We confess our need for your presence and provision above all things, and that without you, there is no hope for our personal renewal or the renewal of our broken world. We believe all this and more is possible through us because of what you are doing in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.